You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, the senior editor at Real Vision, sending to you live from Copenhagen the 14th of uh, July. We've had a bunch of interesting developments from an inflationary perspective uh, today, and I'm extremely pleased to be joined by what I consider a huge capacity on namely inflation and the monetary system, uh, Francis Coppola, um, or should I say the notorious crypto skeptic. Francis, welcome to the show. <laughs> yes, I'm that too, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess some people on financial Twitter would uh, would concur with that at least. Uh, but I, I would like to start uh, with one of the uh, top stories of the day um, from Russia. Uh, the Russian company Gazprom has basically said that they cannot guarantee a um, a safe operation of a critical part of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline in conjunction with this maintenance process ongoing at the moment. If we take a step back and look at this energy crisis unfolding in Europe um, due to the war, how big of a deal is it from an inflationary perspective? Well, it's enormous, Um, but it, it is a real resource constraint. Um, and this has been on the cards for a while. I mean, we, we're playing this kind of game of chess um, in the West between with, with Russia. We don't want to be in the hot war, but we are playing this kind of economic game with them. Um, it would be ridiculous to think that we could impose all these sanctions on them and they would not retaliate. I think closing down Nord Stream 1 was going to happen at some point. And it was then a question of how the West responded to that, what the implications were, um, and how different countries countries responded. Germany has been talking about rationing. And I think it is time we recognised we are in a war. Yes, we may not be in a hot war, but we are in a kind of a cold war. Um, And that can be inflationary. Because one of the ways in which we fight each other is by controlling resources. When you control resources, when you limit their supply, um, their availability, you increase inflation. When when you look at central banks uh, in relation to war-driven inflation, um, how do you view the central bank reaction functions in conjunction to such a supply-side-driven inflationary pressure? It's very interesting because um, there's a fair amount of what I might term bullying of central banks going on right now. Everybody is 
going on about central banks must do something about inflation, forgetting that central banks' job is to look at inflation in the medium term. They're looking at where it is going. Where is it going to be in two years' time? Um, perhaps even as far ahead as five years' time. So the preferred um, measures of inflation can be things like the five-year, five-year forwards. Um, and um, when you look at those, when you look at the forward inflation expectations measures, we're not seeing high inflation. We're actually seeing low inflation. We're actually seeing deflation and a recession on the horizon. And so right now, we've got central banks responding to inflation in the short term, which is primarily supply side driven, but not entirely to be fair, particularly in America, there is quite a lot of demand-side inflation as well, um, and trying desperately to get that under control, while at the same time looking ahead, seeing these inflation ex expectations crashing and thinking, oh, heck, how do we soften the landing? It's really quite a conundrum for them. And I actually would like there to be a little less market chatter and certainly a lot less from politicians about um, central banks must do this, must do something about inflation. Francis, you've earlier argued um, that direct transfers or helicopter money uh, was a smarter way of conducting uh, crisis policy than QE, buying financial assets. Um, if we look back at 2020 and 2021, we had arguably something quite similar to that unfolding in the US economy, direct transfers to each and every household um, and, and uh, small business lending programs, etc. Do you think that the inflationary impact of such programs are also uh, noteworthy? Yes, absolutely, mm. I do. Um, I, I have two points to make about that. The first mm. is that direct transfers like that are supposed to be inflationary. I think we forget that, that the goal of um, monetary policy in a crisis is to increase um, activity in the economy and specifically to stimulate the demand side. And that should raise inflation. It's supposed to raise it back to target. Now, they've massively overshot, actually. And, and I thought they would because they actually did it wrong. Um, they stimulated the economy um, at the wrong time. So the Fed correctly um, sorted out the market um, disruptions in March 2020. But the CARES Act, the um, STEMI checks, were, uh, uh, in my view, the wrong policy at the wrong time. They should have been doing targeted support to vulnerable individuals at the time and keeping small businesses alive, um, rather than doing vast handouts to everybody, lots of which was saved and lots of it which went into asset markets and blew up asset bubbles. And a lot of that is unwinding now. Um, they then compounded that by doing further helicopter money um, drops later on because the first ones hadn't worked, unsurprisingly, because the economy had been shut down and it's a little difficult to spend your stimulus check when, um, when the economy is closed. Um, and so they did it again. And so the amount of money they actually put into the economy, and bearing in mind that all of this was also backed by the Fed doing immense amounts of QE, effectively monetizing the helicopter drops, um, they actually overdid it. Um, to my mind, they should have been much more careful with the fiscal stimulus early on and kept their powder dry to support the economy as they came out of the economy uh, of the um, pandemic. I don't think they did it right. And I think the price they're paying for that is, is demand side inflation, which will take a little while to work its way through.
if we pair the current inflation pressure uh, with the signal sent by the yield curve, uh, as you mm. mentioned earlier, uh, of a potential recession uh, around the corner, say one, two quarters from now. Um, in, in the light of that, um, since generals sort of tend to fight the last war, does that mean that helicopter money slash direct transfers, they will um, turn out of fashion when the next crisis hits? There is risk that that people will say, well, we tried helicopter money and all we got was very high inflation. So let's go back to doing it the way we did after the financial crisis, because that didn't cause inflation. And that would be unfortunate, in my view, because there were some quite serious policy errors. And um, I, I, without wishing to blow my own trumpet, I did warn them. I actually ended up being no platformed in the early days of the pandemic because I, having just produced a book advocating people's QE and helicopter money, was saying to everybody, no, this is the wrong time to do it. Um, it, it and, but I still stand by it was the wrong time to do it. And these are the lessons that we need to learn from that experiment. that We didn't do it quite right. It doesn't mean that the experiment was necessarily a bad thing. Um but we should accept, I think, that it is actually normal to have quite high inflation when you're coming out of a severe economic shock. The COVID pandemic was a very severe economic shock. It would be normal with a rapid recovery from that economic shock. It would be normal to have very high inflation simply because of base effects, if nothing else. So disentangle the, disentangling the causes of the current inflation is quite complicated. Um, I would hope that as we have shown that um, fiscal stimulus can be effective, and I actually think that Europe did this better, actually, European countries, like even like my own country, the UK, actually did this better than the UK, than the US did, um, because we had policies that were aimed at trying to keep people attached to their jobs, trying to keep people alive, trying to keep, and it, to some extent, keeping businesses alive as well. And I don't think the inflationary pressure has been quite so bad there. And maybe the US could learn from that experience that um, actually targeted support to individuals and businesses is in that kind of shock, perhaps a better approach than indiscriminate helicopter money. Helicopter money is needed to give a, a quick boost to the economy when you're trying trying to come out of a recession, not when you're trying to keep an economy closed. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So if we look back at the pandemic response, both from a fiscal and, and a monetary perspective, um, it seems that if, as if both uh, channels worked at the same time uh, through the pandemic. So, so what are the lessons learned in terms of the mix between fiscal and monetary policy during the pandemic? Yeah. Well, one of the big things that happened in the pandemic was a, a major shift in the relationship between fiscal and monetary authorities, because for much of the previous decade, we'd had them pulling in opposite directions. So we'd had fiscal authorities doing consolidation and monetary authorities keeping monetary policy very loose in a way, almost as a shield 
for the fiscal authorities bearing down on debt and deficits. Um, and the problem with that is that the distribution effects of monetary policy and fiscal policy are quite different. And so if you have fiscal policy that is um, fiscal consolidation targeted particularly at the lower ends of the income distribution and you're using monetary policy to offset it, then you're going to have widening inequality. And um, in, in many countries, that's led to increased political unrest, which is not necessarily very stable. Um, so what's happened, I think, in the last two years is we've had a shift. Everybody's become much more like Japan. Because what Japan has been doing over the last decade, um, um, or much of it, has actually been doing um, combined monetary and fiscal stimulus. Um, and that's what everybody started to do during the pandemic, was combined monetary and fiscal stimulus on a very large scale. Now we're trying to normalize policy. And I think that we need to move away from the dynamic of the um, post-financial -fi post crisis years with loose monetary policy and tight fiscal policy and go in the other direction. Say, actually, fiscal policy is very much better at um, dealing with, um, shall we say, inadequate distribution of resources, and particularly because so much of this, what's going on at the moment, is about real resource constraints. It's not about monetary monetary. Um, tightness. It's about um, shortages of real resources. Fiscal policy is very much better at dealing with that than monetary policy is. So we may be needing to move move towards a paradigm where um, we have looser fiscal policy, but tighter monetary policy. And I think a lot of people would welcome that. If we uh, take your assumption at uh, at face value uh, and uh, look uh, into the future of tighter monetary policy, um, it simply means that we should expect fewer real dollars around, fewer real sterlings around, fewer real euros around over the next couple of years. Uh, how does that link to what we see in financial markets right now? Well, what's going on at the moment is a massive liquidity drain and a very rapid one as well. And that's really the, the source of all the turbulence that's been going on, the um, di disruptions on in crypto markets, the um, crash, crashes in, falls in the stock markets. Um, it, all of that really is explained by the rapid withdrawal of liquidity from the markets to try and calm down demand. Um, and it's central banks doing this. It's the aggressive hikes in interest rates that we're seeing, not just from the Federal Reserve, but from other central banks as well. We're seeing quantitative tightening, whether it's actually started or, or, or simply being signaled, doesn't really matter. Markets are um, pricing that in and trying to adapt to what will be um, a much tighter monetary um paradigm, liquidity is going to be scarce and therefore expensive. Um, there are going to be some external effects. So we're going to see, I think, persistently a much stronger dollar. And that's going to mean quite some quite severe strains, I think, for emerging markets. Um, and, um, and, and I do expect this to continue really until the next recession hits. And that might not be that far away. Um, because actually an aggressive liquidity drain like this, if you're not very careful, does actually cause um, a recession. It can, can cause a financial crisis. And even if it doesn't cause a major financial crisis, if we actually manage to, to land the, the, the monetary helicopters, it can still 
um, cause an actual recession in the real economy, simply because uh, um, of distribution of, of money and, as I keep saying, um, shortage of real resources because of political things going on in the world, particularly the U war in Ukraine. If um, if we look at the crypto space, you recently wrote a uh, blog post on CoinDesk um, referring to this recent landslide in the crypto space uh, as a sort of a different cycle compared to the other sell-offs that we've seen in, in crypto space, say, two, four years back. Uh, please unpack that thesis for us. Well, it's really related to what I've just been saying about the change in the um, relationship between monetary and fiscal policy and particularly the shift to what I think might be a permanently tighter monetary policy. Um, crypto has never known tight monetary policy, not in the whole of its existence. And you have to remember Bitcoin has only existed since 2009. It started at a time when central banks were cutting interest rates to zero um, and throwing money into financial markets and then doing QE. Um, and governments were too. I mean, it, it coincided with the TARP program. Um, and uh, the, the famous legend on the Genesis block is about the UK's chancellor um, proposing to, to give banks a third bailout, not, not central banks. It was actually the government proposing to throw a lot more money into banks to try and get them lending. So we were trying to find ways of getting money into the economy at the time. And that has been the origin of crypto has been born out of that and a rejection of it, yeah, originally. But as time's gone on, it's kind of become not a rejection of it, but a play of it. So there's been an immense amount of um, activity in the crypto space, which is all linked to the dollar. It, Bitcoin has not become the foundation, the unit of account in the crypto space. The dollar has. And we've got immense amounts of, of what I might call, <laughs> maybe not fake dollars, but dollars, things that are called dollars but aren't, or things that are pegged to dollars, things that people want to believe are realizable in terms of actual dollars. And there's an awful lot of them in the crypto space. The crypto space does not have that many dollars. And as dollars become scarcer in the real economy, in, in, in the world, in the traditional finance. So the crypto space is going to find it increasingly hard to cash out and realize the, the dollars that it's been creating over the last, um, last few years. And so I do think this crash in crypto is different. It's got to adapt to a permanently tighter monetary paradigm of a kind that it has never seen. Does this mean that being long Bitcoin is basically a better hedge against deflation than inflation. <laughs> Arguably, yes. Um, and this has been said quite a bit, actually. Now, Bitcoin has turned out to be an appalling hedge against inflation because the moment inflation started, went, went up, Bitcoin went down, <laughs> which kind of isn't what you want. Um, but um, arguably, Bitcoin has been, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as well, have been a hedge against low interest rates. Let's put it that way. Um, they have been a way of finding yields and making your money work, if you like, get, <laughs> making some money, really, in, in a world where it's actually been very difficult to make any money just through financial activity because interest rates have been on the floor. Um, 
And so, and, and that's been a lot, I think, of what's generated activity in the crypto space, um, really, certainly in the last few years, and arguably right from the start, it's been a, a low interest rate play. So as interest rates rise, and not just rise in one country, but rise in all countries, um, we might find that um, Bitcoin actually becomes uh, reverts to these kind of the, the commodity cryptocurrencies, actually reverting to what perhaps might be their more natural function, which is actually um, zero yielding assets um, that people have as a hedge. Mm. Setting aside their role as a hedge, uh, do you see any prospects or use cases in the underlying technologies? Um, I've been notoriously skeptical about all of this, but um, I've always, I, I do feel that, that we do need um, some form of digital money that is not subject to government control. Not all governments are benign. Um, I know we, uh, people might think it's absolutely fine. All you need is sovereign money. Um, the government can just issue it and issue it in digital form and everybody can have bank account, have accounts at the central bank. And it's all lovely, isn't it? And I look at, at migrants and immigrants and undesirables of one sort or another and think whatever they've done and however much you dislike them, you don't have the, the right to remove from somebody the means to live. Um, and so we actually need forms of money that are... Um, outside government control and increasingly physical cash is not good enough and the reason for that is that so much economic activity now is online so you know physical cash is declining um, there, there is a huge and vibrant um, online ecosystem out there e-commerce where we need um, digital forms of money um, and I don't think that all of those digital forms of money should be under the control of government. So I think there is a use case for the decentralized crypto crypto um, principle, if you like, that we need forms of money that can't be controlled by governments that are purely produced in the private sector and, and, and can't be controlled either by governments or by by uh, big whales and players and oligarchs and what have you. I think that basic protection for ordinary people is needed. Francis, I, I wanted to play a uh, soundbite for you in relation to uh, the debate we just had on uh, the potential regime shift um, in, in markets and in the economy. Uh, it's from a debate between Harris Copperman and Stephen Clapham, um, uh, an, an interview airing on uh, the Real Vision platform today. So let's listen to the soundbite and get back to the discussion. Yeah, I think the whole world is uh, going to change. I mean, rates aren't going to fall. I think we're in a rising rate environment. Uh, I think we have structural uh, inflation globally. Um, okay. you know, we're undoing multiple trends. You know, globalism mm -hmm. is, is on the way out. Uh, you know, all these trends that were supporting uh, deflation and allowing rates to stay low are kind of unwinding themselves. And no, I think rates will be going higher. I, I think we also just lived through the mother of all uh, equity bubbles. I mean, it used to be that I mean, when you look back in time, you know, back in 2000, uh, you, you had a bubble in stuff like General Electric, you know, it traded some crazy multiple that was totally unsustainable, but they never missed earnings. So everyone said, OK, fine, whatever. You beat earnings by a penny, we'll give you a crazy multiple. But General Electric was real. Well, parts of it were. Um, you know, and you, you look forward yeah. to now and we have, we have a crazy bubble and stuff that 
is totally fake. It's just like ephemeral hocus pocus nonsense. Like how many billion dollar uh, dog walking apps does the world need? It, it just it, it's just such an extreme example of a bubble. I mean, uh, it's just been a, it's been a crazy bubble and all sorts of crazy assets and. Um, as a result, I think that the unwind of this bubble will lead uh, to a very nasty hangover. And I think that people need to rethink how they do everything because, you know, a lot of the financial system has been built on the idea that uh, interest rates decline and cap rates uh, decline and real estate only appreciates. And I think a lot of these things we've taken for granted aren't uh, taken for granted anymore. I think this is uh, really a golden age for uh, global macro guys like myself that uh, thrive in volatility and rapidly changing dynamic. The entire interview is available for subscribers uh, on the Real Vision platform. Uh, back to you, Francis. Um, a couple of interesting remarks from, from Harris Copperman here in mm -hmm. relation to globalism, not least. What do you make of the debate on um, globalism ending after the pandemic? Well, it, this is kind of what I've been saying, that we're seeing a, a real shift here. Back, we, and we've seen it developing actually even before the pandemic. And we saw, have seen the shift back towards nationalism. Um, and that started in about the mid-2010s, mid mid maybe a little earlier, about 2014, mm. 2015. We started to see a shift to nationalism. And when you see that kind of shift to nationalism and political shift, um, there is going to be an economic shift as well, because nationalist, nationalism doesn't lend itself to globalization. There's been quite a reaction against um, globalists. So here, for example, we had the reaction against the, the what they called the cosmopolitan elite, the rootless um, international wanderers who have no... Um, have no have no have no home. The, the somewheres versus the anywheres, and they become almost like figures of hate, um, and that doesn't bode very well for globalisation. And there's also been quite a, a strong push towards saying uh, reshoring, towards saying uh, um, we must be more self-sufficient. Particularly, I think um, countries now, because of what's happened with Ukraine, and also because of other threats as well. Um, will want to be a lot more self-sufficient in energy and in foodstuffs. And we are going to see major changes in that. And that will have, I think, a lot of effect on on global supply chains. It is going to be a major shift. And we are going to see the, this kind of golden age of globalization, which has kept inflation low. And I have to say, it has, has lifted a lot of people out of poverty as well. I, I disagree with Stiglitz, by the way, when he said globalization is bad for emerging markets. It's actually been really good for emerging markets, for, for people in emerging markets. We've got more people lifted out of absolute poverty than we've ever had. Um, um, but the people who paid the price for that were actually the middle classes in the West. Uh, they're the people who didn't benefit from globalization or didn't see themselves as benefiting. And they're now reacting against it and they're seizing the political ascendancy and they are putting up the barriers. And so that golden age of globalization is coming to an end. And the, the new paradigm which has been forming now for about the last six or seven years, I would say, um, is nationalist. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, if we look at the current labor shortages we see in the US, in the UK, and parts of uh, mainland Europe as well, um, how do we reshore without labor being available? <laughs> Yes, we, we haven't quite worked that one out, have we? Mm. I mean, there is the kind of the Marxist argument um, that, that that basically says the tight labor market is an incentive for companies to invest in technology. And uh, to the extent that, that te technological investment um, actually drives productivity improvement, that might be something we actually want. Um, I mean, I don't know if, there, if any research has been done on the uh, relationship between um, increasing the flexibility of your labour market and including more people in it whose marginal product is lower. This is a controversial and difficult subject, um, but we need to to look at this and falling pro and and disappointing productivity. So it might be that part of your solution to labour shortages is for companies to get on with automation. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's been a huge resistance to that as well. And it's fair to say there are some jobs that are really quite hard to automate. And a lot of those jobs are in sectors that we de we've now discovered we desperately need, like in healthcare, for example, and social care, those sort of things. And those jobs can be really quite hard to automate. Um, so it's not straightforward. But one, one thing that does seem to be coming to an end is the idea that we can import the people we need to do those jobs. Um, not just because, and this won't just be, be because of the reaction in our own countries to having lots of immigrations, immigrants coming in to do those jobs, because actually if people are faced with a choice between having services, having immigration and services, they'll choose services. I mean, they'll moan about the immigration, but they'll put up with it because they want the services. So I, I'm not really very convinced by this. So we're all going to shut the doors and not let the immigrants in to do the jobs. It's more, I think, that eventually... The countries from which the, we have expected immigration to come won't send people anymore because they'll need them themselves. Mm. Um, you know, the global aging phenomenon that's partly driving our, our labor shortages, demographics, is, is a global phenomenon. It's not just limited to Western countries. No, if you look at demographic projections for the labor force in China, for example, they look absolutely awful. Yes, because yeah. of the one-child policy. I think the only place, the only places in the world where the demographic outlook is brighter are India mm. and sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Um, I wanted to allow a few questions from the audience as well, Francis. Uh, and we have a question from uh, Ralph um, in relation to the coverage um, uh, that you've made on uh, the run on the Celsius Bank. Uh, could you please uh, discuss your observations on uh, the Celsius Bank failure um, briefly for, uh, for Ralph here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I had a bit of a rant on Twitter earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm amused to see that um, Masinski has now released his his statement, a long statement, I haven't read all of it, but um, um, Katim Shubra of the Financial Times did a thread on it. And one of the things um, Masinski has said is that um, asset is that essentially deposits placed in in Celsius are assets belonging to Celsius, which is what I said. 
that I think there is a huge misunderstanding generally in the crypto sphere about the nature of a deposit in a company like um, Celsius and even in a company like Voyager as well, that these are not assets under management. You are not placing funds with a company like Celsius so they can manage them for you. They're not your funds. You're lending those funds to that company and it will do with them whatever sees, it sees fit to raise profits for itself. It will take risks with, with those funds and you have no right of return. All you have in the event of bankruptcy is an unsecured claim um, so you will have a right to a share of whatever residual assets are left after secured claims and senior claims such as unpaid taxes have been settled. So I'm personally of the opinion I think it's extremely unlikely that Celsius depositors will see the return of their funds. Um, I think they're going to see really quite sizable losses. Um, we already know that crypto depositors in Voyager are going to take a substantial haircut. And I think that we're going to see something similar happening to Celsius depositors as well. We have um, time for another question from Oliver, and I can understand that this is from the other side of the pond because he's asking <laughs> uh, both of us, uh, what are European governments considering to do um, in uh, relation to the energy problem and how to um, assist households with that? Well, this is a very good question, isn't it? I mm. mean, um, they're, they are under, under a lot of pressure to um, provide help to households. And this might take a number of forms. It might take the form of price caps. It might, um, it might take the form of subsidies, energy subsidies. We've seen those before. It might take the form of some form of handout, um, you know, um, fiscal transfer. Um, it um, might take the form of nationalizing their energy companies. There's a bit of that going on. Um, and it might take the form of rationing. Um, Germany is already talking about rationing. It really depends how bad it becomes. And all of the things I've mentioned are things that I think some or all um, European countries will end up doing at some point. I struggle to see how we can avoid a recession given all of that, especially if we uh, venture into rationing. Um, I saw that the Bundesbank uh, released a um, a study on the potential GDP drop should Germany yeah. need to to ration the um, the natural gas resources uh, by by winter. Um, so it is a, a truly interesting time um, coming up. Uh, I've made it my trademark, Francis, to always conclude uh, the daily uh, briefing with a meme. Uh, so I want to bring the meme um, up on the screens. Uh, and um, of course, when we uh, have the notorious crypto skeptic uh, visiting us. <laughs> today we needed a meme in relation to the inflation hedge uh, of, of bitcoin um so uh, this this meme is obviously taken from uh, the goodfellas film uh, but i i had a big laugh at it when i saw it yesterday final question like from my that. side francis um would you expect the crypto winter to be over by now or should it should people expect it to continue during the autumn i think it's going to continue I, I can't see it being over any anytime soon. Actually, if you look at previous crypto crash, crashes of this kind, they have been long lasting. It, it, you know, when when Bitcoin crashed in in 2018, it took another couple of years before it recovered. I, I don't think it will be perpetual winter. I don't think we're going to become Narnia. Um, 
But um, I, I think it certainly could be quite a long-lasting slump. And as I've said, I think that in during that time of winter, the crypto industry will need to reform itself and turn itself into something that will work with um, a, a fundamentally different um, paradigm, a, 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 a global system where globalization is ending. And this is, these are borderless currencies. Why do we need borderless currencies when globalization is ending? Um, you know, if we're moving into tighter monetary policy, we may be losing, moving into looser fiscal policy um, and real resource shortfalls and a particularly severe resource shortfall in energy. Um, I think there are some really serious challenges there for crypto. They're going to need to, to as an industry, work out how they're going to meet those. I'll allow that to be the concluding remarks from your side uh, for today's daily briefing. Francis Coppola, it was an immense pleasure to host you during the show. Thank you for joining. A pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We will be back again tomorrow with Jared Dillion guesting the show. Thanks again. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.